guys, we're going we're gonna to jump into Revelation. We've been, been just starting, really. I mean, it's a significantly long book, so we're, we're still early days into it. Um, but we're going to jump in right where we left off last week. This will be our second letter, looking through the seven letters that are contained within the bigger letter that we call Revelation, this revelation that uh, John had on the island of Patmos. So we're looking at these letters. And as we go, I want to just remind us that um, Revelation is one of these books where historically, um, it just, it can get, it's, it's wonderful, it's amazing, it's insightful, it's powerful, it's, it's God's word. But historically, it has been one of these texts that have just, for whatever reason, has been divisive in the church. Um, and I've got, got theories about why that is. I think it's partly to do with just, you know, it's, it's a slightly difficult book to, to interpret, to get your head around, and there's been a whole lot of interesting interpretations and books and movies and everything else um, made about this book, and, and it's not all super helpful. In fact, some of it is just, just unhelpful. So we, we want to approach this book. I've already said this a couple of times, but it's worth repeating. We want to approach our study of Revelation with great humility great humility. And as we go along, you might find that some of your understandings, um, long-held beliefs or assumptions about Revelation might be challenged. Um, I hope that's the case. I hope, I hope we are all challenged in various ways. And I hope that, um, that God helps us as we wrestle um, through this book, this amazing gift together. You guys with me? Super important super important. Um, yeah, so let's just do it. Let's just jump right in. Revelation chapter 2. I uh, have a letter that's actually addressed to the angel of the church that is in Smyrna. Hold on. I'm trying to keep track of my time here. Sorry. There. To the angel of the church in Smyrna. That's how Revelation chapter 2 verse 10 or uh, verse 8 begins. So what do you say we open Smyrna's mail? Smyrna is one of the seven churches in the ancient province of Asia. And Jesus speaks to John. And he says, I want you to say some specific things to these seven specific ancient churches. Ephesus was last week. Smyrna is this week. So here we go. It's handwritten. This one was a bit shorter. So, <laughs> so this is Revelation chapter 2, starting in verse 8. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. 
and for 10 days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Yours truly, Jesus. I added that last bit, but whatever. (laughs) If there was ever a situation where something bad happened to a good person, this is it. Something tragic happening to good people. You guys know what I'm talking about? Ever asked that one of the, the great questions of life? Why do good things happen Sorry, why do bad things happen to good people? Why do good things happen to bad people? (laughs) Why is it this church that Jesus has nothing but positive things to say to or about goes on to say, but do not fear what's about to happen. Behold, Satan's about to cast some of you into prison where you will be tested for 10 days. I imagine if I was there in Smyrna hearing this letter, as it starts out, I... I see you, I know your tribulations, I see your poverty, although you are rich, and I see how there are those who are slandering you, people who would consider themselves to be Jews, religious, um, but aren't, actually belong to the synagogue of Satan. Uh, Real quick side note on that, this is not Jesus being radically anti-Semitic, Jesus was the Jew. In fact, he was the fulfillment of the Jewish Messiah. Um, He's saying that there are those who are lying about you, lying to you, saying horrible things that are posing as like brothers and sisters in my church who really aren't. They're not part of my family. They're slanders. They're liars. They are from the father of lies. That is Satan. And I see everything you're going through. And church, you're doing well. You're holding up. You're suffering in a way that demonstrates that you get my grace. Well done. Therefore, do not fear what is about to happen next. If I was sitting there, I'd be thinking like, oh, wow, we're doing so well. Great, Jesus is praising us. Thank God because, wait, hold on, what did you say? (laughs) The devil's going to do what? How about a reward? How about, I see how hard you're working. I see what you're going through. I see your trials. I know that you're suffering poverty. I know that you're being lied about. I know that you're going through all of this stuff, and I've come to relieve your pain. I mean, that's what one would hope for, right? But instead, he says, don't fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison so that you may be tested. How do you feel about that? How do you feel about that? There's a, um, we're gonna jump around a little bit this morning. I'm gonna try to tie quite a bit of scripture together in the New Testament. But there's a church that the Apostle Paul writes to in Corinth, one of the ancient cities 
Um, they're not in the ancient province of Asia, but in Macedonia, sort of on the other side of the, the ocean there. And he writes a letter to this church bragging about another church. Let me, let me read to you what the Apostle Paul writes in another letter. He says in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, we want you to know, brothers and sisters, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches in Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part, for they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord. Jesus, when speaking to the church in Smyrna, he says, I see your affliction, I see your poverty, but you're actually rich. They get it. It's, um, it's, it's Matthew 5, it's the Beatitudes. It's when Jesus says, blessed are those who are poor in spirit because they're actually rich and they have a reward that, that's awaiting them in heaven. He's saying, church, you're doing so well. You're, even though in this world, in the Roman Empire, in your current experience, many would look at you and say you are poverty stricken, but you know you're rich, and so do I. You're living as if your life was built on something beyond this life. Your whole value system seems to be based on something otherworldly something that's of my kingdom, my value system. So he says, I, I can see that you're, from a temporal perspective, broke is a joke. But I'm saying in my family, you are rich. You get it. You get abundant life. And so what is the result of this? Well, once again, it's imprisonment by the devil. Now, I thought about this, well, it's been months now. I've been meditating on these letters. This week, I was thinking about it, and I thought, okay, here we go. Smyrna, Sunday's five days away. Um, what do you want to say, Lord? And I kept thinking about it and thinking about it, and everything in me wanted to simply allegorize the situation. You know, like imprisonment by the devil. It's a metaphor, Right? Like, they're not really going to prison, right? No, actually, that's exactly what Jesus is talking about. I, gotta, um, I brought this up with me. It's cluttering my little bench here. Um, Tuesday, this showed up in the mail. Anyone familiar with the Voice of the Martyrs publication? That's what I'm talking about. This is uh, just a simple little magazine that, that is mailed out. To, I didn't even know how it ended up in my mailbox. Um, I'm glad it did. But it was started about 50 years ago by a gentleman named Richard Wormbrand. He was a Christian in Romania during the communist regime there, and he was imprisoned simply for being a Christian. He was kidnapped on his way to church one day and locked up and tortured severely because he was a Christian, because he was following Jesus, because he was orienting his life around heaven's value system. And so I started to read about some of these modern-day martyrs. People all over the world, India, China in some parts, 
several different countries in Africa, northern Africa, where there are groups radically hostile, violently hostile to anyone who would claim to be a Christian. This is what's happening in Smyrna. It's actually not an allegory. These people are actually going to be locked up. Some of them will lose their lives. And I thought to myself, I don't have any frame of reference for that. I don't think I've ever actually suffered because of my faith in Jesus. Perhaps some of you have. I wouldn't be surprised. Perhaps some of you have not, obviously no one in this room has given up their life uh, for the sake of following Jesus. Unless, and I'm being serious, unless you, you did and somehow you came back to life. I've heard of that happening. I don't think that's happened to any of us in here. What do we do with this letter? Well, I suppose some of you, I hope not including myself, may actually be called by Jesus to give up everything and move to some other place in the world to tell people who've never heard the gospel about the grace of God in Jesus. And you may actually face imprisonment, possibly even loss of life if you respond to Jesus' call in that way. That's an absolute real possibility. And in that case, you know exactly what this means for you. But let's suppose most of us in this room will never be called by Jesus to do that. What do do we make of this? What sort of testing might we face as we attempt to follow Jesus in the context of our lives? Well, let me me emphasize this point before we, we get too much further. The idea of following Jesus and then suffering because of it, that's like a normal pattern all throughout scripture. For example, Job. This is in uh, the opening verses of Job, which is arguably one of the oldest letters in the Bible, or books in the Bible. It says, and the Lord said to Satan, weird, have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Have you considered my man Job, who's doing really good? I mean, he's blameless and upright in all ways. If you want to have a go, take on my man. Okay? Joseph. We've all heard the story of Joseph, the dreamer, the technicolor dream coat. You've seen that movie, right? It's a great movie. Joseph, he's betrayed by his brothers who sell him into slavery, dump him in a pit, ends up being taken into slavery in Egypt. And he says to his brothers, after he catches up with them decades later, it was not you who sent me here, but God. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that people should be kept alive. What you meant for death and evil, God meant to preserve life. What about Moses? It says in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 25 and 26, that Moses choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin, he considered the reproach of Christ 
greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, he was looking forward to the reward. He ended up spending 40 years in the desert of Midian because he refused the riches of Egypt. He thought it more valuable to suffer as a child of God. And it cost him 40 years in the desert and then some. Then, of course, there's Jesus. It says in uh, the opening verses of, well, a few of the Gospels, And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, not for 40 years, but 40 days, being tempted by the devil. That word tempted there is perazzo. I think I'm saying right. It sounds more like Italian than Greek. Perazzo which is the same word used in Revelation 2.10 for tested. Jesus was tested in the wilderness, having been led by the Holy Spirit, by the devil, for 40 days. There's a pattern emerging. And of course, Daniel, and this is my favorite one, because I believe that John in Revelation is actually explicitly alluding to Daniel when he mentions the 10 days. Listen to what he says. This is Daniel chapter one, verses 12 through 15. Test, this is Daniel speaking to his uh, captors. Test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So we listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. At the end of the 10 days, it was seen that they were in better appearance and fatter in flesh than all the other youth who ate the king's food, which marked the beginning of a lifetime of opportunity and favor as Daniel served and gained influence in the house of the king. And we could go on and on and on and on. An individual or a church choosing to trust and obey Jesus, to follow him, to risk all. And what is the result? Trial, imprisonment, testing, the devil trying to take them out. This is, this is a very, very clear pattern. How do you guys feel about that? Who wants in? Stephen's in, okay? We're gonna be passing out connection cards later. (laughs) And we'll be sending you across the world. Okay. What I'm not suggesting, what I'm not saying is this. That every time something bad happens to a good person, that somehow that's, that's God doing that. And, and it's, it's for some, you know, uh, amazing, incredible, mysterious, sovereign purpose that God has. I, I think that would be a gross uh, exaggeration or, or overuse of the principles. The pattern there, absolutely. Does that therefore mean that every time a good person suffers is because God has this like secret plan at work in their life? Is God sovereign? Of course, 
If you're going to take the Bible seriously at all, you can't deny that. I don't know why you'd want to, to be honest with you. But God, a long time ago, made the sovereign choice to give us real choice. How about that for a beautiful paradox? In God's sovereignty, he chose to give us real responsibility, i.e., free will. Call it whatever you want, and we can debate about it until Jesus comes home. But it's a reality in Scripture that God is sovereign, that he oversees all human affairs, and yet he's given us real choice, which means real responsibility, which means not everything that bad happens is somehow God signing off on evil at work in my life and in the world. Nothing happens under the sun that's outside of God's sovereign oversight. Yet we still have very real responsibility for the decisions that we make in this world, which means sometimes I'm on the receiving end of bad decisions that evil people make in this world all the time. It's a mystery. This is what I am saying. Sometimes God's kids get attacked for orienting their lives around a different kingdom. Sometimes my commitment to putting God first results in life getting way harder. Sometimes my freedom in Christ can result in temporary demonic imprisonment. And sometimes God would look at my situation and say, do not fear what you are about to suffer. The devil is about to lock you up, but don't worry. It's only a test. Be faithful, even if it means death. And I will give you the crown of life. Sometimes that's exactly what's going on. Certainly for the church in Smyrna. What do we make of that? Testing. I love what 1 Peter 4.12 says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Don't be surprised when you find yourself in the midst of a a fiery ordeal. It's a test. It's a test. It's from God. He's doing something. Rejoice. Testing. Perazzo. Why, how, and how not to pass your test? Why does God test his children? It's, it sounds slightly manipulative, does it not? I'm just saying. Like, I'm suffering, I'm hurting, I'm confused, I'm losing hope, and God's like, don't worry, I'm just testing you. <laughs> Whoa, that's... Sounds slightly cruel. Okay, God's not cruel. And God only ever does things for our good. Even when he disciplines his children. Even when he's dealing with us. It's always for the good of his children. God is a relentless um, redeemer. He's the master of redemption. 
Why did he test us? I'll suggest two things. Well, number one, when we're being tested with God, know that there's always a purpose at work. Because purposeless testing is what we call masochism. It's not from God. God doesn't find enjoyment out of just watching his children suffer for suffering's sake. That's called asceticism. It's this idea that somehow God is pleased when I'm suffering for no other reason than just to see me suffer. As if like somehow I earn pity from God because I'm going through hard stuff. God, God doesn't think that way. No good father thinks that way. There's always purpose behind God testing us in the midst of affliction and suffering. And I would suggest there's two reasons that God tests us. One, it's for strengthening us. And number two, it's that we might be a comfort to others. Number one, when we're doing everything in our power to follow Jesus, to trust him, to live blameless and upright lives, and we find ourselves being locked up behind bars by the devil, and God has allowed it, it's because he wants to strengthen us in some way. And secondly, he wants to allow us to go through a situation so that on the other side, and it's only 10 days, there's a finite, there's a, a limited amount of time to this situation, but on the other side, we might now have experienced a comfort that we ourselves can offer to others, i.e. empathy. Testing for building personal strength. James chapter one says, count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The reason God tests us isn't to mess with us, isn't to torture us, to watch us squirm as, somehow he, as if somehow he gains pleasure out of that. It's that he wants to strengthen us. He wants to allow us to go through some things so that we can go from strength to strength, from glory to glory. The church in Smyrna was rocking and rolling. They were getting it right. They may have been dirt broke, but they were rich in Christ. They had it going on. They had joy. They had strength. They got grace. They were following Jesus. And what did they get for it? Suffering. Suffering. The devil threw them in prison. Why would God allow that? Because he said, you guys are just jamming. I've got plans for you, church in Smyrna. You know, Smyrna, out of all the churches in the ancient province of uh, the Asian, you know, in Asia, <laughs> Asia Minor, the ancient Roman province of Asia, they were the first church to erect a statue to Rome. They built a, uh, they, you know, the archaeologists dug it up they found this beautiful, ornate statue of Roma, the goddess of Rome. Smyrna was one of these little, little cities in Asia that was constantly finding themselves caught between warring empires. And they finally surrendered to Rome because they thought, surely we'll find peace there. Surely they're the empire who can rescue us. And sure, we'll be their slaves, but we'll be taken care of. It's the Pax Romana, it's the promise of peace, whatever it takes. And so they were looking to the Roman Empire. They erected a statue to the Roman goddess Roma. And then Jesus came along and he said, mm -mm -mm. 
beautiful statue. Give it a thousand years, that thing's going to crumble. It will literally decay. It's a false kingdom. It's a fake God. It's an empty promise. Trust me, I've conquered death. I have everything you're looking for. And they did. And they found new life. And God said, you guys, you guys get it. I've got big, big plans for you, but I'm going to need to build you up. I'm going to need to teach you some things. I'm going to need to allow you to experience some real pain so that you can go from strength to strength. Because I've got plans for you, my church. Which is why, secondly, being tested allows us, when coming out on the other side, to comfort Those with a comfort that we ourselves have been comforted by. This is what Paul says going back to 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Have you ever felt, found yourself in a situation where, um, you know, someone's come to you, they're spilling their guts, and like you want to say something encouraging, but you've just never been there? I get that all the time. Like I've lived a relatively insulated life. I'm, I'm very happy for that. I have parents that are still married. I spent the first 20 years of my life in the same home. You know, kind of st- stability, it's super boring, but the, st- the stability that comes out of a childhood like that. I walked to elementary school, I walked to middle school, I walked to high school. And then eventually, Jesus rescued me. I spent about eight years having just a grand old time, almost killed myself in a million and one different ways, and then Jesus comes bombarding into my life. Okay, that's enough. We can go on like this until, until hell. Or you can surrender to me, and I'll teach you what real life is like. So I did at 24 years old. And then I got to go into full-time vocational ministry. I, I, I somehow landed this like unreal job of just getting to like encourage people and tell people about Jesus. I used to think that like, you, no one actually gets paid for that. I don't know, maybe in ancient times it wasn't a real thing. I guess what I'm trying to say is I am just blessed like, like one couldn't imagine. I got to live over in London for like almost 10 years. Met the most amazing woman on the planet. Married her. Have three amazing, funny, cute, wonderful, annoying kids. I have, a, I have a blessed life. And then people come to me spilling their guts about like proper affliction. And I'm like, I, I, I got a Bible. I got verses. <laughs> I got, I can pray for you. I can give you a hug. I can introduce you to someone who've been where you've been, who's come out on the other side. Suffering becomes a gift in that respect, the testing that God allows us to go through after we've been 
following him, faithfully trusting him, it becomes an opportunity to receive a comfort that people around us desperately need or longing for. How, what's, what's a, a bad way to endure a time of testing? Uh, perhaps you're, you're in a, in a like you're obviously not in prison, but let, let's say you're in a, a phase of life where you, you feel like, man, I've been following Jesus, and uh, honestly, I feel like since the day I began to trust him, make some changes in my life, um, like things kind of got more complicated for me. Things, things, I mean, as far as I can tell, like things didn't actually get better it's all getting really hard. Anyone, anyone relate? Okay, cool. I got a hand. Awesome. Yes. See that hand? See that hand? See that hand? Okay, so you get it. And if you've never been there, you will be. Just keep following Jesus. How do you not pass the test? Let's put it that way. How, how can you just like royally screw it up? Whine a lot? Yeah, yeah. That's one way to do it. How about run away, withdraw, try to circumvent the whole process? Maybe get it in your mind that like, okay, I'm suffering. I feel like I'm like in some sort of like prison cell. I must have done something wrong. God must be punishing me for some sin like I'm not even aware of. So let me disengage. Let me run away. Let me withdraw. Let me see if somehow I can just like manage this thing to the point that I'm like no longer actually feeling what I was feeling before. No, don't do that. God allowed you to go to that place in the first place because perhaps you were doing something all right. And so he says, I want to take from strength to strength. I want to teach you some things. I want to lead you through something so that you can be comforted in a way that you would otherwise not have in order to comfort others. Don't run away. As soon as you withdraw, test failed. Number two, make it all about yourself. One sure way to see a test backfire. Just make it all about you. That would be whining. Feel sorry for yourself. Get it in your mind that somehow what you're going through is all about you. And I guarantee you that test will not end well. Um, some of you might recall the uh, Acts 16 Philippian jailer story. You remember that one? Paul and Silas on a bit of a missionary journey through Macedonia. And uh, they end up getting thrown in prison. Apparently they confront some little girl who's got a spirit of divination. That's how the Bible describes it. They're following Paul and Silas around saying, these people are from God. These people are from God. And Paul, apparently just out of like sheer annoyance, turns around and he like commands the spirit, come out in Jesus' name. Little girl set free. Problem is her handlers are now upset because they no longer have this like this freak show to, to make money off of. And so they get Paul and Silas thrown in prison. It says around midnight. They're all locked up. They're surrounded by fellow prisoners. They start to sing songs, worshiping Jesus. 
And it says the big earthquake and these prison doors fly open. There's a jailer there who's from Philippi, a Philippian jailer. He comes rushing in thinking that the prisoners obviously would have run away. And so he's going to kill himself because the higher ups would have had him executed for, for letting the prisoners go anyway. But he comes in and he hears Paul and Silas cry out, don't do it, don't kill yourself, we're here, it's fine. And they proceed to tell him about Jesus. The Philippian jailer and his whole family end up putting their faith in Jesus as well. Their imprisonment had little, if anything, to do at all with them in that moment. God sovereignly allowed them to be locked up for faithfully testifying to the faithfulness of Jesus. Why? So that a whole family could experience the grace of God. It was never about them in the first place. Could you imagine if they had run? Could you imagine? It's like, okay, we've been here, what, five hours singing, worshiping, Jesus, where are you? Earthquake, doors fly open. They're like, dude, sweet, let's run for it. Somehow, they had concluded that they weren't meant to get out of the situation because it wasn't even about them in the first place. They knew that God was up to something and that their imprisonment was actually an opportunity to see others blessed, to see others meet Christ. So how should we endure testing in our lives? What do you think? What's the best way to do it? What, well, what does Jesus say to Smyrna? He says, remain faithful even if it costs you your lives. That's intense. Is that not intense? You're going to be locked up in prison. You've been doing everything right, but don't fear because the devil's going to lock you up in prison. So hang tight, even if it costs your lives. Because I've conquered death. And if you remain faithful, I promise I'm giving you the crown of life. I don't even know what that means. But it's Jesus' way of saying, I am sovereign king. Not even death can hold me down. Follow me, trust me, obey me. Hang in there, don't run. Don't make it about yourself and you will receive the life that you're looking for. The second death can't touch you. I would put it this way. How do we pass the test? Number one, cling, unrelenting, cling to unrelenting hope. Don't give up hope. Do not give up hope. Don't give up hope. Whatever you do, don't let go of hope. No matter what happens, don't ever stop hoping. Cling to hope. Don't give up hope. Get it? There's very few things as a follower of Jesus that I can say no matter what happens, I'm not letting go of this. Hope. You know, I was, I was at a marriage conference, uh, what, last summer? And uh, the speaker there, she, she was a former statistician for the New York Times. 
And she spent the, the majority of her adult career doing research about all sorts of different things, primarily to do with relationships. And she would write articles on these things. Eventually, that gig sort of morphed into a, a marriage counseling job. And she got educated in that. And, but she was rattling off a whole bunch of statistics about marriage. One of the statistics that shocked me, some of you undoubtedly would have heard this. She, you know, have you ever heard this stat that currently the divorce rate is about the same outside the church as it is inside the church? Have you heard that one? She says around 50%. 50% people are divorced outside of the church and inside the church. Super depressing, right? She said it's not true. She said, show me that stat. Show, show me where you got it. And she said, better yet, I'll show you where you got it. Because I know exactly where it came from. And I know exactly how it's been misconstrued over and over and over. And preached and re-preached and re-preached again for several decades now. It's not true. And she went on to explain as a statistician where that statistic came from. And how it's been interpreted and used. And she said, honestly, no one actually knows with any real accuracy what the divorce rate is in the church because there's so many different factors that number one, haven't actually been surveyed and even if they were, there's just a 101 different ways to interpret it and here was her point. She says, as a statistician, if I was going to actually give you a, a closer estimate, I would say the divorce rate in the church is probably closer to around like 20 to 10%. It's much, much, much lower. If you're talking about like like real Christians, church-going Christians. It's much, much lower. And, she says, and this is why I emphasize the point. She said, in years of marriage counseling, years of marriage counseling, I have found that the one common factor that makes the difference when a, between a couple getting a divorce or not, it's hope. She said, in countless number of sessions she's done, with couples, with marriages on the rocks. She knows when the marriage is going to end, when one or both of the members of the couple resign themselves to stop hoping. This idea that like, what's the point of fighting anymore? What's the point of enduring any longer? We both know how this is going to end anyway, right? Who are we to think that we're gonna beat the statistic? And as soon as hope is lost, the game is over. Don't stop hoping. There is hope. You don't have to be another stat. You can do this. God's grace is more than enough. In fact, the odds are you can make it through this. So don't give up hope. Secondly, Find help in prayer. Don't do it alone. Don't suffer alone. Let's end with this. Second Corinthians, going back there. We actually started Second Corinthians chapter one, verses, uh, verses eight. We started in Second Corinthians. Let's come back to Second Corinthians. He writes this. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. 
Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. Talk about the sovereignty of God. What is it about the way God works in the world that says our prayers are radically significant? If you're suffering this morning, if you're going through a trial and it feels unfair, there's something about trusting Jesus, doing everything that you know to do right and your life gets like worse, that just feels unfair. Like where is the justice in that? God is allowing you to be tested. God is allowing evil to to do something so that he might do something greater, that he might be the master of redemption in every way in our lives, and you feel it, you're in it, you want to run away, you want to disengage, you want to make it all about yourself, even though you don't really want to make it all about yourself, but it's so hard. Don't do it alone. Don't suffer by yourself. Reach out. Let someone see you cry. Tell someone how angry you are. Do me a favor, though. If you're hurting, if the way you process that hurt comes out in anger, it's very hard for people to, like, engage with you in that place. Anger is scary. If you can manage, rather just cry. Just cry. Be sad. Be vulnerable. Let people see how badly you're hurting so that they can perhaps comfort you or maybe just sit next to you, put their arm around you and pray with you as a brother or a sister and remind you that you don't need to give up hoping that our Father is truly the master of redemption. Can we stand together, please? You're now listening to Grace City Portland.